You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Tuesday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Okay, I hit a button. I hit a button, everyone. And I got to tell you, this guest, when I was loading the Zoom today, I was getting kind of excited. You know, they're kind of excited where you say something out loud and you can barely talk because you're so excited about this thing. And I got to tell you, I, I, would, I would just kind of fall over myself describing her. But I actually love how she and many people describe her as this multidisciplinary marketing Swiss Army knife. And I would add a leader, a thought leader, also a trained journalist who brings that curiosity into marketing, which I think is so missing in a lot of things we do today. Founder of the invite-only content marketing leaders Slack channel. Interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe it's classified. Senior Director of Marketing at Path Factory, Cassandra Jowett. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Yeah. I'm just so many, I probably missed a few things too, but thank you so much for being on here. This is going to be fun. Definitely. So, I know there's something that you're constantly talking about in, in helping people perfect. And there's a lot of misunderstandings. It's the idea of events and the idea of virtual events. And a lot of people are having Zoom fatigue. There's all these things going on. So what I want to do here is grab, hold on, this thing's heavy. I'm going to pass this to you. Okay, here you go. Here's the <laughs> hammer. You got it? You got to take it? Okay, good. Yep. All right, there you go. Not so heavy, right? It's pretty good. So. Yeah, take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Virtual events don't have to have all of the same things as in-person events. That's my uh, myth, B2B marketing myth buster for right now. They don't have to have all the same things. So what, people are just trying to recreate everything they did in person virtually? Yeah, I think that's been the norm for a really long time, especially when it comes to, okay, we have a booth at in-person events, so we have to have a virtual booth, and uh, (laughs) we have a lunch break, so we have to have a lunch break at at the virtual event, and, you know, we have a musical guest, so we have to have an evening musical guest at the virtual event, um, rather than trying to think about holistically what would actually make a great virtual experience, and I don't necessarily have all the answers there, but I think if we start from a place of this is a totally new thing, this is not an in-person event. And so we can't just replicate the same old stuff we've been doing um, in trade show halls for the last, you know, 50 years or whatever. Um, Hopefully we can get to a better place, um, both in terms of results for the business, but also the experience for the people who are actually attending those events, especially since there's so very many of them going on right now. Wow, this this is the approach I think is needed because everyone kind of has this sense that, okay, we can do the Zoom thing, but I don't know. I've seen a couple of events and I'm just like not even not interested or if I am, you just, it feels weird, like forced. And it sounds like you've got to the, the root of the question, which is it's not the same thing. So stop trying to use the same terminology and, and the same, oh, oh, are there going to be virtual cookies and coffee in the back for me to have too? Like, no, it's virtual. Go get your own cookies like this. But like even using the same vocabulary, it does make people comfortable, I guess, if they know what the words are, but it just, it's not the same. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it just lacks creativity, and it means Ooh. that, um, you know, not not to put too much judgment on my fellow DJs. Shots fired. No, you already I'm, did it. I love it. I'm there, too. <laughs> um, you know, it's a lot harder to come up with something that new, but um, we have to keep in mind that, number one, you know, there's a totally different context that people are experiencing these events through, um, both in terms of, you know, the fact that it's virtual and not in person, but also just, like, we're all at home right now, (laughs) or most of us are at home right now. And so, um, you know, there are many other things going on and there are partners and kids and pets and, um, delivery people and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. Whereas when you're at a conference, that's probably usually the most divorced you are from your regular life because you have a hotel room and your family isn't around you usually. And, um, there aren't all those distractions. So you can kind of get super focused. Although, um, you know, I've definitely been guilty of cracking open my laptop and working on some stuff during some sessions that weren't exactly what I thought they would be. So you kind right. of get that blending there. But um, for the most part, you know, this is this is a whole new experience that we're all kind of going through. And then also, um, there just aren't the sheer number of competitive events going on. Um, you know, while I think events have really been on the rise, despite marketers complaining about them, um, how expensive they are and how much work they are and stuff. Um, I feel like there had, you know, just before the pandemic started, there had really never been more conferences and trade shows and meetups and all that kind of stuff because people genuinely love, you know, meeting other humans in person and having that community around them. So, um, you know, there was some competition, but you really can't be in two places at once. Whereas virtually there's so many things that you could do at one time. And, um, you know, when you have back to back, meetings, plus virtual events, plus your work, plus all these other things, um, it's really difficult to stay focused. And I think it's also unreasonable as marketers to expect that we're going to hold someone's attention, for example, for four day, four, four full days of content right. while someone is sitting at home in their office or on their couch. Um, and, you know, whereas that that's really the norm um, for, for in-person trade shows. So um, you know, just things like that, where even just rethinking the length and the amount of content and all that kind of stuff going on, um, because it, people are just not going to do it. Like, I'm not going to name names, but I we, we sponsored and attended a virtual conference, one of the very first ones. So I have to give them credit for pivoting really quickly, but it was right. still, you know, it was going to be a four-day in-person show. And then it became a four-day online show with, you know, very similar agenda. And you could just see every day the the virtual attendance dropping off to the point where, um, you know, the sessions as well as the the booth traffic on day four was a, a fraction of what it was on day one because people are just not going to come back um, over and over and over again every single day when right. there are so many other things happening. So, um, you know, as a sponsor and as an attendee, that was one of my biggest pieces of feedback for that team was... You know, four days is a lot. <laughs> um, four so days is a lot. Maybe try to compress it or curate it a little bit better so that people aren't feeling like they have to come back four days in a row. So even things like that where, you know, there's sort of a typical conference agenda, you know, you just, you're not going to be able to get everything in. So anyway, I, I could ramble on about this for a long time. I'll stop there and maybe let you <laughs> let you interject a little bit. But just things like that where you're even rethinking the length and the format and all that sort of stuff is, is really the beginning. And then you can kind of go into like, what should a session even be? How can people interact with each other and that sort of stuff? Yeah. I want to get to all these things. Um, but I'll first comment on what you're bringing up and, and just the idea of it, you, for sure, you can't, it does not equal. There's like a little, you know, you can't have an equal sign between these two. It fails. And at your example of the four day event, I, as you I was kind of laughing to myself as you're describing that because 
imagine trying to go tell our bosses to get permission to not sign on virtually for four days because we're going to be at an event. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you can reach me by phone, but I'll be in sessions. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't, hey, I'm going over to a virtual Dreamforce here. Don't, uh, out of office is up. I'm not around. Of course you're around. You're your computer, the same computer you're normally at. Yes. You're right, it's different. And we do tend to go to conferences for that focus. Or I know if it's a bad session or keynote, we can pull up on our phones. I'm guilty of that. Or maybe not guilty, that's just what you do. But at least you're there. And then also there's that magic of meeting the people and, and colliding with them um, that is just so different. But my question to you is, how the hell do you have a virtual trade show booth? And do people like come to it? Or how does that work? <sighs> It doesn't work very well. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, and uh, we, Path Factory, just did a survey in the last month of marketers and uh, virtual event attendees, and only nine percent of them said that virtual booths were a good experience <laughs> and a valuable thing to have. So clearly, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think came about when you know the first virtual event platforms were being developed, and they were literally just trying to recreate the expo hall right. online. And so for some of them, like they have like little virtual booths that are like 3D graphics and they're like little fake people walking around. And in some cases, um, each attendee even has their own avatar and they're like walking around this trade show hall. Um, that's, that's become a bit less common. Um, but what, what it is now is you'll log in, it'll just be like a big um, listing, like a web page with like little banner ads for each sponsor. And you can kind of click through. And of course, you know, sponsors are trying to um, just like normally have incentives for you to visit their booth. They're trying to entice you to come and talk to them by having um, different content or events or giveaways or whatever it is to, to come through. And, um, you know, if, if the um, platform is gamified a little bit, then it'll encourage you to kind of scroll through and oh, visit yeah. as many booths as possible. So I, I've seen all of those things so far, but really what happens is people just click through and they kind of do the bare minimum required for whatever you know, whatever the thing is that they're trying to do. And so it doesn't, it just doesn't mirror the, <laughs> the experience yeah. at all. Where like, you know, normally you kind of, you know, there are a lot of attendees who are just kind of running by the booth and they won't talk to you, but um, they literally have to ignore a human being um, trying to connect with them, making eye contact, yes. that kind of stuff. Whereas the virtual booths at best, um, you know, as a, as a booth babe, you're kind of chatting people Um, so you send them a chat request and say, Hey, thanks for visiting our booth. Um, anything I can help you with today, or here's what we're doing or whatever your hook is to get them to come in. Um, and then try to like suck them into a chat conversation for a little while. And, you know, Oh, in a chat, it's not even video, like hop into it. No, it's a chat. So, you know, we've, Uh, we've tried some different things where, um, we'll have a zoom running that people can click through to, to actually yeah. interact with the human being. But a lot of people kind of got curious and clicked through and then got freaked out that there was a person there and would <laughs> jump right away. Um, so we found that having sort of designated times, for example, that they could <laughs> come in and do that right. better because sort of like, here's exactly what we're doing and what you'll expect. Um, and so that worked a little bit better, but yeah, it's not, it's not like a human is there greeting you. It's just a chat request. And most people do not accept the chat request. So there's re- n- no real engagement. And so it's basically a little landing page that people might click through and, and watch a little bit of content. You might have some videos or um, PDFs hosted there. Um, and that's basically it. So yeah. um, it's very basic. And in my opinion, like 
not a lot of value for anyone who's sponsoring those yeah. events. Sounds really. lame too for everyone involved. Like, yeah. well, let me look at your marketing collateral. Like, um, in, in, as you're describing, like people trying to get your attention, I, I was thinking the exact same thing where I, I will walk by and kind of like out of my peripheral, try to see if there's like a teddy bear I can get for my kids or, you know, f- free book or something. Or what does this company actually do from their tagline? And every now and then there's someone who's like, huh, how's the trade show going? You're like, I, I'm, I'm not that rude guy. So I'm going to be like, it's going well. And they're like, How, how's your thing? And I'm like, all right, okay, I'll talk to you. Your giveaway yeah. is good enough. But I could see, like, if I could see cherry picking maybe and being like, oh, these guys will send me a free book if I chat with them for 10 minutes. Well, maybe I will. But at least, but right, or maybe nobody does it, right? To your point of like, everyone's like, nah. <laughs> yeah, and like, I think that the problem is that all of those people who are attending the conference can really find out about any of these vendors online at any time and yeah. you know, fill out a request a demo form or What's the rush? Um, you know, chat with them on Drift or whatever. Yeah tool they're using so um it's not like that provides a unique experience that's not available already and um there isn't really that sort of organic um human -human conversation and and definitely you know speaking as a marketer um who sponsors these things you know definitely some of the magic that happened at events for for path factory in particular happened because we have you know engaging people at our booth who can really know how to reel people in and have great conversations about marketing. And so you get a lot of great, you know, first conversations, but also a lot of great, you know, second and third conversations, people kind of just hanging out at your booth because they're learning stuff or hanging out because they think you're cool people. And, um, that's just, again, not possible at virtual events at all. So, um, you know, you kind of lose, lose the magic. And, and so I think that's where we kind of have to, take that as a signal that like that it, just repurposing it wholesale isn't working and yeah. we have to come up with a unique format and program for these virtual events and you know maybe even invent some new programs and formats that are just completely different um and you know maybe not have everything all in one big <laughs> big event once a year um because you're going to miss a lot of people it's not going to be the right content or format because you just yeah. can't fit it in and so you know, there's, there are lots of ways to approach it. And I definitely, I think at this stage, I'm still in the let's ask questions and let's test things and see what works. Um, that's definitely the, the period of time that I'm in as a marketer. I, I wish I could just say, here are all the answers, trust <laughs> sure. what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, after one quarter of being through this pandemic and being all virtual all the time, like, you know, definitely have learned some things about what's worked and what hasn't worked. But, um, you know, I haven't tried everything. And, um, you know, when you're trying to pivot in real time, when all this stuff is happening, you you also don't always have the opportunity to just sit down and think like, if I could create the perfect virtual event, like, what would that look like? So um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, as we kind of go through the rest of the year, we'll have a bit more time and space as marketers to think about those experiences and also, you know, pick some, some bits and pieces up from, from things that we like and don't like, and then start to remix them into, you know, virtual events that are truly exceptional and not just sort of tolerable, which I think most of all of our virtual events today are just pretty tolerable and sometimes educational, but very rarely entertaining or, um, you know, recreating that magical feeling that you get at these, um, different events and trade shows. Yeah. Some of the magic in, in, that I was thinking about was just not even at the booth. It might be a happy hour, your happy hour, someone else's. 
yeah. all your collective IQs are like four. Um, and then you're just like, wow, I like these people. And then you like each other. They're like, then you, you try, start trusting, like, let's do business together. Like I, we weren't even trying to sell each other. We were just like, yeah. oh, these are all good people I've met, the synergy there, the experience there. That, that sounds right. Um, you know, I want to get into the, some of the, the learning lessons. And I know you talk about length and format and session and just kind of talking through, like you said, we're still learning and testing things, but trying to get a sense for those. Uh, one, one thing that I experienced, and maybe this sort of gives you the context for just launching into this is I saw an event that was offered um, in the Salesforce ecosystem, not official. I think it was a partner and um, something that I hadn't seen before. They, they offered the speakers the chance to upload the presentation, tape it, record it, upload, and then put it, they'd put it in their format. And logistically, I can see that, okay, if you're going to have nine presenters all virtually, like you might need to have a backup content. But then at the same time, by offering these recorded things, I just thought, what's the difference between this and me logging into a recorded webinar, you know, which happens and what's the difference? Is there any difference? So I don't know. That was my experience. I didn't like it. Um, And so what are you, what are you seeing with formats and sessions and recordings and not and all that? Yeah, that's super common. Um, yeah. <laughs> as a as a sponsor, that's sort of the recommended option that a lot of these platforms. And it's really it's it's you know a, f- a function or a feature of the platform itself. Um, yeah. It's just like safer to record it in advance and upload the video file and then semi live broadcast it and make everyone kind of feel like it's live and like that's you know when I'm put in that situation where you know that's what the um, the conference organizer has recommended and that's what our customer speaker prefers. For example, like you're kind of like, okay, like I don't really want to do that, but, um, I'm not going to force my customer to go live, especially if they have like a janky internet connection and (laughs) around, you know, all the time. And and they just want to, you know, devote their, their private time at some point at like 11 PM at night, one time to record perfect version of their session. Like, I'm not going to say no, um, and so you try to sort of fake it, um, you know, and I'm sure every marketer has been there where you have your list of pre-baked questions that you ask at the end and pretend that those are coming through in, in the Q&A or something. And, yeah. you know, it's fine. It's totally fine. The content is conveyed and it's, you know, maybe a little bit, um, a little bit stiffer or more perfect than the live versions. But I, I definitely think there's a bit of magic in live. However, I've also been on the receiving end of glitches and, mm-hmm. um, you know, customers video dropping all together and you have to like get them to come back in. Um, so, you know, there are all kinds of challenges. And I think part of that is that, you know, those platforms, um, you know, just haven't been optimized for that kind of performance um, over the years. I think yeah. as marketers, we were kind of like, oh, though it's good enough. And like, we mostly get by on in-person events. So right. we're not going to demand incredible innovation from these tools. Uh, and we're really seeing the result of that lack of innovation investment now where we want to do yeah. it all the time and we want an amazing experience. We want that magic and it's just like not possible. So, um, you know, I think that's part of it. And the other part is, you know, when you're recording that, it really does feel like just a webinar. And um, it's, I think most people don't necessarily have the skills to speak to their slides and sort of (laughs) moderate and engage with the audience in chat and look at Q&A. Like that is a pretty sophisticated skill set. And I think you have to be 
extremely familiar with your content. And if I'm honest, you know, most B2B speakers are really kind of like they got their slides in the last second and they (laughs) practiced, you know, half a time in their hotel room or whatever, (laughs) or in their bedroom the day before, and then they're delivering the content. Um, And again, I've I've totally been there. And so I think there's just like a level of, um, you know, a level of investment overall, whether it's investment in the tools that are available or investment in the content preparation, um, all of those things kind of have to be considered uh, in advance. And we just haven't had time to do that. So, um, you know, all of those things are really important, but you're totally right. Like why attend live when you can just watch it later on demand? And I think that's a totally valid, um, a valid way to experience these things for now, especially when people aren't creating exceptional live experiences. And really, if you're just there to learn from the speakers, you can kind of pick and choose which on demand videos you want to watch and, and go from there. So, uh, you know, definitely, I think that's, that's valid. I think marketers, Mm -hmm. again, have to prepare for that eventuality. And the fact that a good portion of their audience isn't going to be able to watch live. And Mm. um, you kind of have to think about that on demand experience as well. Um, Which I think marketers are not necessarily used to thinking about you might get a recording of your customer session, but usually it's really expensive and it's not that great and all that kind of stuff. So you might just turn it into a webinar later or something. If you, um, if you have the customer willing to do that. Um, And whereas now you get both in one go and you have the opportunity to deliver it as a follow-up asset, um, package it all up together with your other sessions at that conference, like all of these different things. And um, you know, the, the on-demand experience is, in my opinion, just as crucial as the live experience um, because that's where you're going to get the longevity of the results of your event. Um, That's where you're going to be able to really track um, sort of evergreen content and be able to understand whether that's actually good for your next event or not. Like all of that kind of stuff, I think is just as important as the live experience and can teach you as a marketer just as much about um, whether your event is interesting and relevant to your, your customers and prospects. So, um, you know, I think that'll be something that we start talking more about as well. Like what are we going to do with all this content afterwards? Um, now that the live event is over and, and what does that experience look like and how do we collect all the data that comes out of, um, people watching that content or reading that content? Right. It's like, I'd love to see the, the data on the, the, the on-demand content Yeah. initially after or during the whole thing. And then ongoing. I wonder, I wonder even about my own content, if, if recorded content, is it a myth? Is it like, because I've heard the stat from our friends at Uber flip about like 87% of all content goes unconsumed by anyone ever. Right. Um, and you're like, holy crap, you could be dooming your amazing webinar to like the depths of your website. Um, but I, I also heard from, um, really cool content gal, uh, Deb Gabor, who was saying that she actually sells more to the people who don't attend than she does to the people who do. I don't know what that means, but all I know it means maybe the recordings are important. I know she does some special emails because of it, but it does raise into question like, what are we doing this for and, and why? Yeah, I mean, I'm really encouraging marketers to think about events in a long-term life cycle perspective and not okay. just as this one time, um, you know, big bang event where 
you know, it happens and it's over and you don't really worry about it until you, until you start planning for the next one. Um, that all of that content that was created there is extremely valuable and your audience, the majority of them probably weren't able to attend live, even if they bought tickets, even if they registered, like they're probably, they got sucked into a meeting or there was some sort of emergency or who knows what. So they, they weren't able to watch live. And so, um, you know, maybe when they have a moment to think about the problems that they they actually need to solve in their business, they're going to go back and say, Oh yeah, there was that event. And there was that session I really wanted to check out and I didn't get the chance. Let me see if I can find it in the on-demand experience. And let me watch it a bit more thoughtfully with that intention of I have a problem to solve and I'm looking for a solution. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's when we need to think about the sessions and um, the actual content that's presented, uh, you know, as answering, as being useful in answering our customers and prospects questions to help them take that next step in their buying journey or in their customer journey with you, uh, depending on what kind of event it is. And, you know, I really don't see marketers thinking of the content that way yet. Um, and also you can really use that content to, you know, first of all, to get more registrations or get more people consuming the content immediately afterwards, but also to start promoting the next event that you're having and sort of use it as proof that, uh, you're actually delivering really valuable content and excellent speakers. Right. Um, it's, it's just already all there. And I think normally for, especially for B2B events, you kind of, you know, there's the loyalty of a community that returns time and again, or there's the the big name keynotes or celebrities that you attract. And like, again, that's probably just not going to be happening as much for virtual events. Um, so you might, you might get the odd company that has, you know, Adam Levine singing a, a t- <laughs> from his garage or whatever it is, but that's not going to be a reason to like spend money on a ticket necessarily because right. it's not the full experience. So, um, Really, I can literally like get that by playing it on Spotify. Totally, or going to YouTube and just being like, right. "Oh, let's watch, let's watch him do this." So, um, you know, there has to be other value there, and you really need that proof of yes, we were able to deliver this inc- exceptional content and a great experience, and it, you know, these these speakers who really knew what they were talking about um, in order to get people to register for your next thing. Right. Um, so, you know, I think there are just lots of ways that you can remix all of that stuff, whether it's immediately after the fact, um, or in the long term, leading up to the next event, whether it's, you know, the following year or the following quarter or whatever. Um, I just uh, thinking more about that deliberately, instead of having it be sort of a happy accident, if you do use it, which, you know, I think most marketers, that's kind of what's, what's happening today, there isn't a plan for the life cycle of all of that content. Um, and there isn't a plan for, okay, we have this period before the event, mm-hmm. we have this period when the event is live, and then we have this period after the event. What happens at each of those stages? What are the distinct campaigns? What's the distinct experience? Um, you know, what's the data that we're able to collect at all of those different stages? How are we going to analyze that? What insights are we trying to pull from that? Like, we don't really ask ourselves those questions too often. And so yeah. I really want to encourage marketers to start thinking of it that way and be a little bit more deliberate um, about it in order to, you know, get the most value and provide the best experience. Right. Deliberate. I mean, being intentional about these things is half the battle. Just un- yeah. having a plan and knowing, said you can't wing everything. <laughs> uh, I, I have a particular bias as it comes to events. And I wonder if you can help me out with this. And I know sometimes, you know, I'll treat myself as the customer and I'll be like, well, the customer won't like this because I don't like that. But not, right. I'm not always the customer. And very much often not always the customer, even if you're selling to the same person in the same industry or whatnot. But mine is around like the live events. And I'm, 
And I love the live events, right? The, to your point, the concert in person or seeing Hamilton in person, not Disney, Disney Plus, not bad. But, but seeing it in person, there's an energy to it. And also, you know that this is happening in front of you. It's live. Um, the, and the audience feedback. So for the speaker, on, on when I'm a speaker, I love the audience feedback. Are you laughing at my jokes or not at all? Are you smiling? Can, I, can, you, can I fight that grim face you have and make you smile just a little bit? Or I don't know. I just, you get a little feedback or even questions or something. Or they're zoned out. They're all on their phones. Great. Feedback. Uh, but you don't really have that on webinars. And so yeah. I think when I've done webinars, I'll, I'll, I'll get really interactive. I'll try to be like a, a Twitch TV person where it's like, hey, you know, who's got this? And put it in the chat, you know, and, um, and that kind of thing to try to make it a little more fun. But I guess what, what is, the, is, there, is there a valuable, tangible value for the live marketing events versus the recorded? Is there value there? Isn't there? Like, help me sort through that. Yeah, I think there is value for the live events and it's it's less just about the exact content that's presented because like you said, you can just record it and throw yeah. it online and it's there. Um, you know, some of the things that we've been experimenting with on our team that we've gotten great feedback from in terms of audience participation uh, is, you know, throwing up live polls and you know, as much as it's interesting to see what other people are, are voting for, my theory is that it literally just pops. It's like a pop-up on your screen yes. that gets you to like, like tune back into what's happening and click something and engage. And then you're kind of back into the conversation. And so um, you kind of see these like, you know, waves of participation as you right. pop up polls. And it also makes for sort of great extra content that you can insert into the recording or slides later. Mm. Um, because not definitely like I we use zoom webinars right now. And even though you pop the polls during the, the webinar, it doesn't put it into the recording at this stage. So you kind of have to go back after the fact and like insert it into the slides. Come so, on, zoom, get with it. Yeah. I kind of, I feel like it should be just on the screen, but, um, I know they're dealing with a lot right now. Um, a hundred more users. They didn't expect it to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm sure stuff like that is probably in the feature request Jira somewhere or something and right. it'll happen one day, but it's not there yet. So, you know, things like that, where it gives you extra content to, to follow up with people and you can kind of promise that even during the yeah. live event where, it's like, okay, we're going to share all these poll results with you. Um, you get instant feedback to even create more content um, from that. So there's sort of that factor. So polls are definitely one. For me, having a dedicated chat moderator who isn't one of the speakers and is, you know, engaged in the chat conversation and trying to keep it going is super important. So like I said, it's a real skill to be able to juggle presenting and chatting and Q&A. So um, having that chat moderator who's just sort of like the hype man or hype woman in the chat mm. trying to get everyone and sort of like, you know, if there's an interesting nugget that was dropped, like, oh, what do you think about that? Or how does that look like at your company? And, you know, naming people oh. um, if, if they give good, good responses, asking follow-up questions. And then, of course, the really great speakers will always be sort of skimming the chat as they go. Yes. And, you know, doing what you mentioned, which is, you know, hey guys, uh, you know, we're talking about this. How does that look at your company right now? And um, what, what kind of TV shows have you been binging lately? Like just kind right. of making it feel like more of a conversation, even though it isn't really, and they can't really speak back to you, but they can at least engage in the chat. And if you're lucky, then you get people not only talking to you, but also talking to each other and asking each other questions. 
um, identifying things about their business, um, you know, doing a bit more out in the open publicly in the chat versus just submitting like anonymous questions in the Q and A. So, you know, those kinds of things I think are really great. Um, you know, everyone wants people to live tweet and all that kind of stuff, but I just don't see that happening, especially in Mm -hmm. B2B marketing. Um, Twitter is kind of a crazy place these days. So yeah, it is. Bunch of angry, goofy people on there. Yeah. So unless, unless you're, your target audience are social media marketers who are on there all the time for their job. I think that's a bit of a losing game. Right. Um, so, you know, stuff like that is uh, meh. Um, and, right. you know, one other thing that I would recommend is to, you know, think about small ball um, conversations that you can have where you can actually turn people's cameras and microphones on. Um, we're part of uh, an organization called Sales Assembly it has these great sort of roundtable sessions that are relatively small and just getting people to come on and become part of a roundtable conversation. I know, um, you know, Heinz Marketing has been doing their CMO talks um, where they have people on. And so, you know, making it less of just a one-way presentation and more of facilitating a conversation in the same way that you would do at a meetup or something like that is is really valuable. And um, that's part of the strategy that we've been doing with our customers, um, mm-hmm. you know, people who are already PathFactory users. And, you know, normally we would interact with our customers a lot at in-person events. And so um, we'd get that time to get to know them and, and they have their chance to kind of be like, oh, I was thinking about this strategy. Can you help me figure that out? So we've given them a few new options to actually come and engage with us and each other by having their cameras and microphones on. But, you know, surprisingly, it takes takes a lot to convince some people to turn that stuff on. They're not always interested in um, engaging that way. Yeah. Very few people are like, they feel comfortable. And I think not a lot of companies have sort of, um, encouraged cameras on. So people just feel like they're suddenly exposed and it's almost <laughs> like you're asking them to, you know, walk into this spotlight totally naked in front of everybody, you know, like right. it's very nerve wracking for them. So you just kind of have to be cognizant of that and also very patient. You know, sometimes I have to be really friendly and be like, Hey there, Casey, like, thanks so much for joining us. We'd love for you to turn your your camera and microphone on and ask any questions. And, you know, then nothing happens. You're like, okay, I I get it. I'm shy too. Um, You know, no pressure here. We're all super friendly. Like, don't worry if you're not sure what to ask yet. Like, we just love to meet you and learn a bit more about, like, you kind of have to play the role of like a super host, a super friendly, um, you know, restaurant host or the, the person at a front desk of a hotel, just really trying to like draw people out. Um, because that comfort zone is not necessarily there yet in the same way where you're, you're seeing someone in person and you kind of have to reciprocate because it's, we're all just in like tiny people in screens right now. For sure. I feel like at that point you have your, the hype woman you were talking about over in the corner being like, don't be a wimp. Everyone's got their cameras on. You've been in COVID for seven months. You still don't have your camera on. Whoa, negative one, you know, like just like making fun of them. No, probably a bad idea, but I could totally see bad how. idea for customers, but you know, good maybe cop, for bad cop, else. right? Yeah. It's okay. Maybe. You don't want to turn your camera. That's so, that's so cute. Person's like, that's not cute. That's stupid. That person's stupid. Maybe their combined forces will get the, the image to show up. But I think people, thanks to COVID, people are actually doing a lot more video, thankfully, than they yeah. would beforehand. Like beforehand, it was, it was like weird to do that. Um, I remember actually I had a chance to work with Zoom for a bit before all this and and we actually weren't even on zoom we were using GoToMeeting. really they're like, they're like no no no. <laughs> we got to use our own meeting thing for our own we're working together so we're like yeah. okay and that's how we discovered zoom was working with zoom on zoom it's kind of meta but 
Um, but they always turned their camera on. It was cool. And it was kind of like they were leading the way that way. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how people change over time with this stuff. So you mentioned um, some of the different format. By the way, all the things you just mentioned, that's exciting. We should t- turn our attention, instead of having virtual booths and stuff, what kind of neat things like that can we b- put into all of these presentations? The hype woman, the different, the panels, the, the videos, like having other people talk to and inviting them to ask questions on camera. And that's, that's, where, that's where this needs to go, to your point. Um, any, anything to add? I know I wrote down length, format, and session early on because you're like, you got to rethink all these three things. Yeah, talk to me about the length of time. We're not doing the long keynotes, I assume. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, you know, if you're if you're really just being a thought leader, then you know, five minutes is probably <laughs> a generous amount of time. And I know that you can't cover every single talking point in five minutes, but you know, you're just not going to hold someone's attention um, for that long with a single speaker. So Mm -hmm. uh, one of my biggest tips is definitely to have multiple speakers and have them play off of each other and have, have, you know, don't, sorry, don't have people talk, don't have a single person talk for longer than um, five minutes at a time, because I just don't think the human brain can process that. And so, you know, maybe you have a dual, dual speaker situation or a panel situation where you can still convey the same content, but it's not just that, you know, one dude talking for half an hour, um, at nothing, <laughs> uh, right. and have no, having no idea. I can how do that. I, I can for sure do that, but you're right. It's not, yeah. easy, it's not a good experience easy, or you do it terribly. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, that having at least one other co-speaker where you're alternating mm-hmm. back and forth. And we see this a lot in podcasting, you know, like yeah. you have the guest, you have a conversation and it's much more engaging than just, you know, no offense, hearing from Casey for, for half an hour and having you read off of, you know, I'm sure a really, really well-written script or whoever it is. Right. But, you know, I think people don't even really want to listen to Ira Glass talk for an hour, you know, like, it's true. and he's the most interesting man to listen to at times. So, you know, he yeah. still hands off the mic to someone else after a few minutes. So, um, you know, if anyone thinks they're a better speaker than Ira Glass and more, more compelling, then let me know. But um, right. you know, I think for the most part, we're not. And we're just trying to share some information with our, our customers or prospects. And so, you know, having, having that short, so even if, the, even if the whole thing is longer, at least breaking up um, into different speakers. And then also, I think having uh, specific sections. So instead of having it just like flow into one big, long thing, like have specific breaks, partly for the live audience, but also so that it's easier to cut the on-demand file into multiple um, videos instead of delivering like a 60 minute long video to someone like that's pretty intimidating to click on a 60 minute video and be like, Oh, I have to get through this now. And even if I watch it at like two X speed, that's still half an hour. Um, I wish I could just like figure out what the most interesting or most relevant parts are. And so point, you know, get to the point. So, uh, you know, one thing we've started doing is again, thinking about and planning that content in advance. Um, both for the live experience, but also for on-demand. So there are clear section breaks. And then afterwards, you can edit everything into shorter clips and people can click on the clip that is most relevant to them based on the topic of that section. So yeah, so it's just a better experience. And even though people might only consume like three out of the six clips or something, um, at least they're watching some of it and not just bouncing away because they're so frustrated at having to figure out 
where is the good stuff in the 60 minute clip or where is the stuff that's most relevant to me. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's something that like a best practice I've been sharing with a lot of our customers uh, lately as we talk about sort of best practices, best practices for virtual events. And, and they're all like, Oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? That's such a great idea. So um, I think that's something that just is really obvious on the surface, but you know, takes that little bit of extra planning on the front end and that little bit of extra work on the back end to um, chop the videos up. But really it doesn't cost you anything extra. It just, it just requires a, a bit of extra thinking and some quick video editing skills to just like, quickly even open the videos in their finder and and crop them down so yeah uh, that's an easy easy fix this is good stuff the idea of different speakers even just hearing you and i it's much more engaging for people too because it's, it's a it's a change in i know all different words the timber and the, the the pitch and like just hearing two different voices you can't help but pay attention to it whereas we've all been in class where we can't barely manage to stay awake um, to that one teacher who's droning on and on and saying their thing. It's like, oh, and one person, another person, another person, maybe they're different personalities. There's so much stuff you can play with there. Uh, it's a great, great concept and also the chunking of the content so that we can skip to, oh, I want to get to the tactical part. Oh, I want to hear the strategy behind that. Or I want to go, you know, letting people choose their own adventure with that content. And they're not, and that's the benefit of hearing a recording versus the live. You have to wait and listen to everything that's said. Whereas you could skip around, give the people the ability to do that. You know, that's the, that's the benefit. Let them, let them do it. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I think wow. everyone is on their own self-directed journey these days and everyone wants it as personalized as possible. And the best way to really personalize it is to let them choose. <laughs> um, right. So I think that's, that's a great point. And then, you know, to your point about um, this monotonous voice that it often accompanies B2B virtual events, you know, as speakers, we really have to think about, what is coming out of our mouths and how, yes. how can we sort of not just speak at the same volume and pace and, and whatever the whole time. We're not just reading off of slides, which I think, you know, there's that sort of death by death by slides um, yeah. title that webinars get, unfortunately. And a big part of that isn't necessarily the slides. It's how people are speaking over the slides. So just keeping in mind, I think that it's still a performance and you should still be as active and animated as you would be on a stage in front of a huge crowd of people. Um, just because you're behind a screen and speaking into this little microphone doesn't mean that you shouldn't do all of those things where you move your face and you use your hands and um, you speak at different paces and volumes and all that sort of stuff. You still need to do those things. And if you're practicing, you should still work those into your practice so that, again, it, it is just more um, interesting for people, not just visually, but also what they're hearing in their ears. So, Right. Right. Yeah. You're going, 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 going. Take a break. Take a breath. Drink some water. And then that silence, right? It like gets people's attention. They're like, wait, wait, wait. What, what just happened? Did my, my audio just down me? Did this thing freeze up? Oh, it's taking a break, taking a breath. And then, oh, the tempo changed and the style. You're right. There's a lot of things speakers could do. I think just even being, like you said earlier, being deliberate about it and caring just because you're the CTO of this company doesn't mean, oof, you know, like let's practice. That's why they have speaking coaches and it's that much more important now because there's no cookies to keep me occupied and I can't use my phone. I'm gone, right? Like I'm not just sitting in the chair stuck there. I am like working on my assignment for work and you're in the background or I just close out of it. So that it's like that much more need to just be on top of things. Yeah. And then one other tip, um, 
I'm, I'm assuming we'll move on at some point, but one other tip is just to give people, <laughs> give people something to look at that isn't just you on your screen or your slides on the screen. Um, you know, if you're talking about a report that you're delivering the results of, like drop a link to the report and let them pop it open in their browser while they're reading it. Um, uh, so that it's not just, uh, you know, I think it's impossible to expect people these days to stay glued into, into Zoom or whatever webinar tool you're using for that long. They're naturally going to click away. They're going to pick up their phone and start scrolling through Instagram or uh, TikTok or whatever they're obsessed with these days. They're going to check their email. They're going to get Slack messages. So they're going to be distracted. So it's better if you distract them with something that's connected to the message that you're delivering so they get it both ways. They're hearing yeah. it. They're seeing you talk about it. They're seeing the slides and they also have you know, the, the content kind of open and they can look at it again later. Um, so that's, that's something I think a lot of people don't think about. They're like, oh, they'll, they'll just download it later um, or we can send it in the follow-up. But you're really trying to hold their attention as long as possible. And uh, I think we're all kidding ourselves if we think they're not going to click away uh, during. So oh, yeah. like d- distract them with your message. Don't let them get distracted by something else. Um, you know, they, they probably will at some point anyway, but, you know, at least let one of those distractions be your own content. So can, like, you know, what we actually do when we have our run of show docs is we have the, the links ready to go. So the chat moderator can drop in the links at the right moment and kind of get, get people clicking away and, and looking at things while we're talking about it on the webinar yeah. so that um, it's a bit more natural and it's just all ready to go. There's no fumbling to find it or, or you know attaching the right UTM parameters. We're really big on UTMs at Path Factory. So, you know, making sure it's all ready to go and we can sort of track that content consumption later is super important and, and sort of seeing how many people click through during the webinar, like all that kind of stuff was super interesting. Um, so yeah, I would just encourage marketers to think that way too. Don't wait for the follow-up because they may never open the follow-up email. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You have them right now. So do whatever you can do to keep that attention. They're a captive audience. So get them in there and get them looking at that content, get it open in their browser while you have their attention because it's, it's, it's just so hard to get people's attention over and over again these days. So um, take advantage of it while you have it. For sure. I appreciate you letting me like, bore into your brain here with uh, all the, cause you, you clearly have it figured out. Even though you said you're still optimizing and still learning, you are light years beyond what I've been seeing going on around me. So this is like something that everyone needs to hear. Um, and honestly, I probably would say like, I need to go check out a path factory webinar. Would that be the right thing? What, what should I check out? Yeah, we have one tomorrow, actually. It's all about uh, sales and marketing alignment. So we have our demand gen manager and one of our account executives uh, sort of doing this fun um, love fest together, uh, talking about the things that that we do. And so I know they have some fun stuff planned for that one. Um, But I can also just send you a few examples of the recordings um, that we've done. You don't get the same chat and live poll dynamics, Mm. but um, sometimes you can get a sense for some of the other things I'm talking about. just based on the recording. So I, can well, I think what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll link to the, this, um, the cool one you're talking about that's going to be tomorrow, but tomorrow may be like five days ago or a month yeah. ago, whenever someone's listening to this. But what we can do is also link to your, if you have like an events page so people can, can sign up to just, first of all, and we'll talk more about Path Factory, but also just see, see what you're doing in the inner, inner, I can't wait to see it. I mean, that sounds interesting. And I get to learn more about ABM and marketing. So um, good stuff. On that note, can we shift to talk a little bit more about ABM and sure. get your take on it? And, and I don't know if it ties into the events or just overall, like 
ABM, like, do you have a, you have an approach to it? Everyone talks about it. There's buzz around it. And it's just, it's a really noisy topic. It really is. Um, and I worked for a really smart marketer at my last company, um, Jim Williams, who used to say, ABM is like teenage sex. Everyone says they're doing it. No one's actually doing it. Anyone who's doing it isn't doing it right. Um, so we're very well. And I think that's still true. In wow, Jim. Yeah, wow, Jim. HR yeah. will be in your office tomorrow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Jim, Jim doesn't care about HR. True. <laughs> it is true. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, the ABM Leadership Alliance, which was started by Demand Base, still exists because um, it's, it's a really tough strategy to, you know, get off the ground, um, to launch, to continue to adapt your, you know, it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. And right. as marketers, we often like those set it and forget it things. So we do, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's evolving over time. Whereas it used to be like, Oh, let's identify this huge group of, of accounts and, and do some right. vertical marketing or something like that. Um, which now is just called good marketing. I think, um, like when I think about, you know, back to what our very first ABM programs were here at Path Factory when I first started you know, over three years ago, that's kind of what we were calling ABM. Like, yeah, let's, let's sort of agree with sales on what our ideal customer, customer profile is, have you know, a, a list of top accounts, but it's a pretty big list, um, and just make sure we're marketing mostly to those people in the right places and, and you know, giving those people a bit of a, a special treatment. Whereas you know, in 2020, I think you know, there's a lot more um, you know, even one-to-one account-based marketing that's happening these days whether that's enabled by technology or just purely like a heavy lift, a heavy manual lift. Um, so there's that. And then I think there's also an emerging ABM for customers going on. So um, right. we, at the last ABM Leadership Alliance virtual event, we had our customer Refinitive on there talking. And I found her story super interesting because she wasn't talking about, okay, we're doing ABM to acquire new customers. They do one-to-one and one-to-few ABM programs for their customer base Mm. to ensure that they, you know, are aware of all the stuff that they've purchased. They adopt it correctly. They're seeing value out of it. They have access to all the information that they need and the people they need all digitally. Um, And they're using PathFactory to do that, which is a very unique use case, actually. Um, But I just found it super fascinating because I think, you know, especially right now during the pandemic, a lot of companies are are really doubling down on their customer base um, and slowing new customer acquisition to a certain degree, or they're kind of yeah. pulling back their investment. And so, um, you know, having a look at, you know, your current customers and making sure that they're super happy and they're super adopted and, you know, potentially buying other products or expanding into new divisions. And, um, you know, the, I think that is increasingly where account-based marketing is going to go because you already know a lot about them. And I think one of the challenges of ABM is, we're often targeting top accounts that, yeah, we really want to have them as a customer, but we don't really know a whole lot about them. And so it's really, really tough to actually personalize a one-to-one or one-to-few program for them because you don't know. And, um, you know, if I think about one of the the mistakes that definitely like I've made and and we've made as a team is, you know, going after big, um, you know, big accounts that, Yes, everyone would love to have, you know, Google and Facebook and whatever as their customer. But if you don't know what that individual team in that individual division in that individual region cares about, then you're just not going to get their attention and it's going to be impossible um, to reel them in, in, uh, you know, in a reasonable amount of time. And we had the best success with, you know, companies that we were familiar with had had 
multiple sales processes with already and we knew a lot about their needs and their problems and we could actually tailor the content that we were targeting at them to serve those needs rather than just kind of you know throwing a cast and hoping that we're choosing the right topic um because right. i really don't think that industry verticals um is specific enough anymore <laughs> yeah. um because things yeah. things can be so different even at you know companies that maybe look like twins on paper they might be at very different places in like their digital transformation in their customer experience journey in um you know their marketing automation sophistication yeah. like all of those things could be so different and if they haven't invested in certain areas and like they're just not going to the messages that you're giving them that are a bit more general are just not going to resonate and it has nothing to do with the industry they're in and it has everything to do with their team and company priorities so um that's that's sort of one area that i think we often overlook as marketers is just like how much do we actually know about these people and what uh, their problems yeah. are outside of like hey that's a cool account let's go after them um so yeah that's that's one area and well know, real quick that's yeah. super eye-opening <laughs> it, i feel like that's the perfect thing to say if you didn't want to do abm does that break sure. the thing all together? Not being able, you can't, great. I'd love to have Google as a client, but I don't know jack shit about how yeah. they're using or not using or how their team is. I mean, you could look into their team and the structure, but you wouldn't know what their biggest challenges are. I mean, you'd have to guess based on companies of that same size, I guess. Yeah, which I don't think is, like, that's not really the purpose of ABM. I mean, I think it kind of breaks it from a marketing perspective. At that point, um, you know, definitely for me as a marketer, that's when I push back a little bit on the sales team and say, you need to do your homework a little bit more here. We can continue doing broad-based awareness and, and target Google as an account, um, you know, from that perspective. But I don't think we're at the stage where we can really target them based on their problems and right. reel them in for a meaningful conversation. like. I think you have to, you know, again, like test the waters a little bit with a few people and a few different messages and see what they um, latch onto. And, you know, there is other intelligence that you can do. So, um, you know, I'll give away some of our secrets here. Like it, since we're targeting marketers, we often see what their CMO has been talking about publicly in terms of priorities for the company. Mm -hmm. You know, every CMO and, you know, they, the CMO tenure is so short these days <laughs> that there are new CMOs all the time and they like to um, you know, be interviewed and, and announce all of their big plans and their priorities. So sometimes you can glean something from there. Um, you know, if you have contacts there, of course, going in and just asking those people, hey, what's up over there on that team, um, asking some questions. So, you know, trying to at least get in there, it's not impossible. And, and you, could, you right. definitely have some things at your disposal to be able to do that. Um, even just looking at their website to see, you know, what's going on on their website can be a good indication sometimes but right. yeah That's a good it, point. It, yeah like yeah. there are other sources of sources of information and you know i'm sure the um the intent providers would want me to talk a little bit about um <laughs> intent where you're kind of uncovering maybe other stuff that's going on and seeing right. um are they really in, in the buying cycle but um you know I, I don't think that data is necessarily good enough to be able to tell you what message to deliver right. to those people why are um, they in market yeah Exactly. So, right. you know, it, it does become a bit more difficult. It's not impossible, but I think you just have to have um, a longer time frame in your mind, especially if they're a large enterprise company, because at this stage, they just may know nothing about you. And if you know nothing about them, then you're really starting out super, super cold. So it's, it's like, you don't know me. I don't know you call me maybe like, Hey, let's hang out. Like, why are we hanging out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It becomes more of like, okay, you put up a billboard at the side of the highway and you're hoping that they see it. 
uh, and, you know, call the number or something or go to the URL, scan the QR code. But like, they're probably not even going to notice it, to be honest, right. um, because there's so many other things going on. So um, you kind of have to try all these different ways to get their attention. Um, and, you know, there are tools that, that as marketers, we can give the salespeople too. like I often suggest that, you know, as much as social selling has kind of become a cliche, if there are key people that you really want to get in front of, then like, yeah, follow them on LinkedIn, follow them on Twitter, start engaging in their posts, like get in front of them as a human being. And they're much more likely to open your LinkedIn message or open your email because you've actually supported them in some way, you know, like you're not just this cold stranger. Um, You're part of their community and you've been engaging with them in a meaningful way, which, um, you know, is, is sometimes not always, um, what salespeople are incentivized to do. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely changing. And, um, you know, there are great evangelists for that type of long-term relationship nurturing out there, but it's still, I think, a very underutilized tool. And even if some people do um, do that, it's sometimes done in an inauthentic way where it's obvious they're just trying to like check the boxes in order to like have permission to reach out, but that's not really the point. Like the point is to really develop a relationship with that human. So I think you kind of have to work those into your ABM strategy as well, which again is very manual. It's a heavy lift. It requires a lot of trust between marketing and sales that you're both kind of doing your part and you're, you sort of divided the lines of responsibility, but like, that's what it takes to, to do it. It's not this sort of like, okay, we're going to turn on this amazing strategy and we're going to go and it's going to be amazing. We're going to get all these accounts and we're not going to have to look at it ever again. Like you're constantly like adjusting the list and figuring out where you are in that process and seeing how people are responding and tweaking. So like it can take a lot of time to even just learn what might work and what might not work. I know like we did a bunch, we, at the end of last year, we did a bunch of just different tests to see um, what like, content formats people might respond to yeah. whether and when it was sent from a salesperson versus when it came through an ad or a marketing email. So we tried a bunch of different things just to see what people might respond to. And we learned a lot and that's where some of my insights are coming from now, but you know, definitely it's, it's tricky now during the pandemic just because so many people are out of, out of their jobs. Yeah. Basically like all of your data, if your data sucks, it's a, uh, it's hard to go after people because like, do they still work there? Um, are they furloughed? Are they on like right. rolling furloughs? Like there's just all these weird factors that make it really challenging. Um, to, are they to in the get... office? Cause I, maybe you can't send them cookies. Like oh, they're not yeah. even there. Yeah. Like I, I know PFL has their cool sort of like, okay, someone can enter their home address. Um, but then they have to like click on an email and go and feel comfortable giving you their personal data. And I know yeah. it works for some people, but um, it's just sort of extra friction in the process. Whereas before you could just be like, bam, I just had like a ton of chocolate covered strawberries delivered to your office. And now you have to reply to my email kind of thing. <laughs> right, like there's right. some level of like reciprocity in action there. Whereas, you know, it's just, you're asking them to do you a favor even before you've given them anything. So um, yeah. Yeah, the psychology is very different. Even Give us your it, home address so we can be nice to you. Like, oh, yeah. No. yeah. You know, which, you know, again, like I, I've definitely heard some marketers singing the praises of that feature, but um, I, you know, there's just no denying the psychology of it is very different. And you, you I think people already have to have some trust in you before they're going to do that. So you can't really, you can't use that on super cold people. For sure. You definitely can't do that. Just changes it up all over the place. Um, wow. I feel like this is one of the most practical discussions on ABM that I've had in a long time. And it started with you bringing up a, like a fantastic 
several objections of like, yeah, we'd also, we definitely don't know what it is, but we're all talking about it. And then, yeah, we don't know anything about these people. We just picked them out of a, a chart and we thought that maybe they looked cool and they fit our demographics and firmographics, but we don't know. We don't know anything. So to your point, it's constantly changing the list or evaluating, okay, this company's off, this company's on. It's, it's real work. It is. And I think that's where the curiosity as a marketer comes in. It's not just enough to like look at the demographics of the company and say, oh, this is a good fit for us. So they should be on our target account list. Um, You know, it comes from having conversations with um, with the account executives and with the sales leaders, um, you know, looking at Salesforce and seeing what data is available um, from past conversations, whether it's, you know, a BDR got them on the phone one time a year ago, or, oh, we've actually gone through a sales cycle or maybe multiple sales cycles with them in the past, just mining all of that data and bringing it (laughs) into the picture. Um, you know, sometimes the salesperson has like a texting relationship with a key decision maker. And so it's like, okay, go back through all your texts and tell me what they were telling you. (laughs) And so you start to develop this like picture of their priorities And only then can you really decide what is the most relevant content for them and like use that to get their attention. And uh, I know that that is scary for a lot of people because that's a heavy lift and it's really hard to scale. But I think that's where you kind of have to start. And along the way, you'll learn how to scale it or you'll, you'll get better and faster at it. You can establish processes where maybe moving forward, the account executives are kind of doing it themselves. Um, But, you know, that first time around, especially the first few times, you really have to just do the hard work, ask the tough questions and and hold things until you really know the answers to those questions um, to a certain degree anyway. Yeah. And that pushback on sales, I I definitely took note of that when you're like, no, actually, you guys need to go do what you do best. You know, I mean, we're, we're not the scalpel here, right? We're the we're the big spray over the whole area, or maybe we can get some laser beams in here, but like we need some human to human contact from you guys to do some investigation and and help us figure out what are the pain points or what situation are they in? And again, not making it just like all about account-based marketing, but really getting sales to be involved too. Absolutely. There's a partnership there. And I think it goes back to know the old ways that sales was done but more in a digital way um and you know i think in coming out of just coming out of the era of marketing automation and marketing generating all these leads and you know sales just gets to kind of like cherry pick what they want and, and that kind of stuff like that stuff is still there but if you really want those those top tier accounts you can't wait for marketing to just um deliver a hot lead and have it fall on your lap or wait for that take a demo request like you really have to go back to those, those older practices and nurture those relationships one-on-one, which, you know, is, is tough for marketers to say to salespeople sometimes because we're not in their shoes. We don't know exactly how hard their jobs are. And, you know, they have a lot of pressure. They're juggling a lot of things. Um, so, you know, you really kind of have to build that credibility with them and not just be like, don't do your job properly. Um, you can't be that like nagging mother. It's, they have to trust you and have to feel like it's a true partnership. Right. You have their back in these ways and you're splitting things down the middle and there's a clear division of labor and it's going to all add up to this great thing that's going to help them close that deal um, and you know, ultimately get that check that they really want. Um, so they, right. they just have to feel like you have their back and, and you have to hold each other accountable through you know, great project management processes and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Interesting. I feel like I could talk to you all day about ABM, um, but we I don't have all day. So I, I want to ask you some few other things, but there is, there is something there. So I, 
I can do your, your webinars address ABM as well. Sometimes we Sometimes. mostly talk about ABM through the ABM leadership Alliance. Um, yeah. Account-based marketing is really sort of one way that people can use path factory. It's not sort of the number one key use case. It's just one Got of it. many. So we Nor do is it ever Sometimes. back to your Jim, Jim's analogy. <laughs> It's one yeah. of the <laughs> yeah one of the ways, um, and so you know mostly we we work with the alliance and, and try to reach that audience to like cool. people who are who are super dedicated to learning about ABM, and so we do a lot a lot of stuff with them, whether it's just about Path Factory or just trying to increase knowledge in general. You know, one of our missions for this year was just sort of like how can we advance the conversation and move beyond the basics a little bit more. Who are you? How did you become so knowledgeable? I, all these, I imagine any kind of topic I could ask you about, you could go in deep and give you all sorts of strategy and tactics that are and aren't working. How could you take us back, take us back in time? Like little Cassandra, like, did you always know you're going to be in marketing? What was it like, where'd you grow no, up? Who are I did you? not, I did not know what marketing was um, yeah. really. Um, so, you know, I, I was always a writer and a creator and a big nerd. I'll just say those three things together. Um, prolific reader and writer writing sort of like, fan fiction stories in middle school, like literally printing out stories and putting them in duotangs and like handing them out to my friends on the schoolyard. Um, like they were novels. And but so like, which shows though, which shows? Kind of um, it wasn't for shows. It was like bands. Uh, oh, so really? Like bands. Yeah. So uh, it was like super embarrassing now, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of how I started writing things that other people would actually read. And then in high school, um, I started building websites and learning Photoshop and, you know, started out with like angelfire.com websites and moved into actually like learning HTML and, and CSS and building my own sites. And so, um, you know, just being, a, yeah, just a huge nerd basically <laughs> and uh, publishing that content um, on those websites and, yeah. and just kind of going, going from there. And so um, in high school, I was like, okay, I like this writing thing. How can I be a writer? Um, and I started my high school's a newspaper for the first time ever. There was no school newspaper there before. Um, and, it, you know, when I think back now, it was sort of like making a bit of a deal with the devil in terms of almost like a content marketing arrangement where um, yeah. my school was not a big academic or creative school. It was more of a football school. And so um, my, my principal, when I went to ask him if I could start this newspaper, he was like, you can start it and I'll fund it if the football team is on the front cover of every issue. Wow! Picture of the team, wow. with like a recap of the last games or whatever. And um, you know, as someone who is not sportsy at all and could not, I never watched a football game at my high school ever. I was just kind of like, yeah, okay, that makes me like die inside a little bit, but I'll do it <laughs> because I like basically he was telling me I could put whatever I wanted on the inside as long as um, I put the football team on the cover. So. Um, Every time, wouldn't that be monotonous though for the readers? Like, oh, yeah. look, it's our team. Again. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was weird, but I did it. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting, and you know, so I had to start it up and find other people to contribute to it, um, lay it out, and so just kind of learning all of those things. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be a journalist, yeah. and I want to write stories um, that aren't all about football teams. And so um, you know, that's that, that was sort of when I decided what I was going to do. And um, there's a really great journalism school here in Toronto at Ryerson University. It's sort of known as um, the top 
journalism school in the country. Hopefully my husband isn't listening because he went to the other journalism school. <laughs> of course and he did. Yeah, we have we get in fights all the time about which one is the best, but I, I went to Ryerson, so I say Ryerson is the best. And it just had a really great practical curriculum. You weren't learning about journalism from books. On like week three, they were sending you out into the streets of downtown Toronto wow. to talk to random strangers. And As you should, yeah, that's yeah. the real journalism. Yeah, and so I was a pretty shy person and extremely scared of talking to strangers. And so it just sort of broke me of that. And um mm-hmm. I still don't love walking up to people who are like standing outside of a mall smoking and asking them like, do you know that smoking is bad for you? And you shouldn't be standing within 10 meters of a, of a, a door of the mall. Like that. you kind of had to like walk up to people and say things like that or walk up to someone wearing like, um, you know, a Toronto Maple Leafs Jersey during the, the NHL lockout and be like, how do you feel about the, the NHL being <laughs> locked out right now? Like, um, you know, even less chance that the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. Like all just questions. Oh like wow! That. Um, Shots fired. Yeah. You have to be a little bit provocative to get them to talk to you. But you know, in, in a city like Toronto, um, you never really know who you're going to bump into downtown. So right. it was just a great education in um, talking to complete strangers about topics that you normally wouldn't uh, really talk about. Getting outside your comfort zone a lot, and you know, writing a lot of stuff on deadline. You know, you would get your assignment in the morning, and you would have to report and then turn in a story before 6 p.m. that day and everything had to be factually correct and everything had to be spelled correctly and you know if you missed any of these details then you would just fail the assignment and so really quickly you develop the ability to create content super fast to be resourceful um, to write excellent copy um, without much direction or feedback really like you just have to turn it in and hope for the best right Uh, and so yeah, I just, I got some really amazing experiences while I was at Ryerson, um, writing for the school newspaper, doing internships with, um, some of the national newspapers here in Toronto, um, and that kind of thing. And, you know, it was amazing, but it also made me realize that I don't necessarily want to be a journalist. <laughs> um, I graduated. What about in, it? Yeah. What about? Yeah. So there, there are multiple factors. So I graduated in 2009 at the height of sort of the great recession when sure. every newspaper was laying off reporters left, right, and center. And, you know, I was taking unpaid internships at first, but I was realizing that the people who were around me, the people who were like three, four, five years older than me, they were on Mm. their like seventh unpaid internship. And Mm. they, they had like a master's from NYU and like all of these extra things that I didn't have. And they were still not really getting paid for their work. And they were still, um, you know, serving on the side or whatever. And I just thought like, Hey man, I have tons of student debt. I, you know, I didn't yes. have my parents pay my way through school. I'm living in the most expensive city in the country. I have to make some money here. And so I was really lucky um, in my third year of school to sort of fall into working for a startup because I was a bit desperate to make money. And also I didn't want to work at Old Navy for another summer, <laughs> just folding shirts for like eight dollars oh, an hour. Do you use those little folding machines, a little, little the board? No, you, you put... just you there's no, no time board, huh? You learn how to it? fold them. Yeah, you just do it. So um, I know how to fold a shirt now, but um, it was, you know, Seriously. I was tired of doing that for years and years. Yeah. So, yeah I just, I took a random, um, basically a sales job at a, at a new startup that had just, um, just literally gone into business. Okay. And I sat in the same cubicle as the founder all summer that summer and just made cold calls and tried to hit my cold calling quota so that I could write blogs. And, you know, it was sort of 2008 was the year that Twitter and Facebook were starting to become um, big yeah. outside of universities. And so starting some 
social media marketing and community engagement on those channels just to see what, what would happen. Um, so just testing out all of those things and really enjoying it and, and getting good feedback from my boss, who was the founder of the company, and thinking like, okay, maybe this is this is so, like I can actually use my skills for other <laughs> other things than journalism. Right. Um, it really sealed the deal for me. In my last year, I did an internship at the National Post, which is sort of like a more, um, I'd say like more conservative leaning newspaper okay. where I, I learned all about, um, you know, bias in journalism. And sure. as as I really hate all the fake news, um, like accusations Ugh. that are being thrown around these days, but like there, every publication does have its own bias. And I really learned that through the way my editor guided my stories and went against my sort of more liberal sensibilities. Sure. Or what was actually happening, you know, like this is, and then you get the feedback that's like, Oh, how about you spin that a little bit? And you're like, yeah. So that definitely happened. And also um, as a young reporter, you often get sent to sort of the worst, the worst stories, the worst (laughs) things that are happening in humanity. So no, just things like, oh, someone just got shot and you have to go pound on their mom's door and like ask their mom how they feel about their son who just got shot. And, you know, there's a baby who's waiting for like a heart transplant at Sick Kids Hospital. You have to camp outside the hospital for three days waiting for this baby to live or die. Like those things just like made me feel like a terrible human being and yeah. totally disconnected me from, you know, what I thought I was doing as a journalist because right. I just felt like I was... um taking advantage of people and exploiting, um, exploiting their stories for, um, for clicks basically. And, um, so I just kind of became a little bit disenchanted with it. And, you know, as I was leaning into the startup at the same time, uh, you know, I did my full-time internship at the national post and I was also working part-time at the startup, um, even in my last year of school. So just sort of switching gears naturally and falling Mm -hmm. into it. And so, after I graduated, I went there and I basically started what at the time we called an online magazine, but it was a blog. It was just a company blog okay. um, and uh, used it to actually grow the business um, and, and make it the number one career site for students and recent grads in Canada at the time and eventually launched in the U.S. as well. And so, um, you know, after a couple of years of doing that and calling myself an editor and calling it an online magazine, I started to sort of search for, for information about how to do my job better. And I was like, wait a minute this is a real thing. It's not just like me being a weird journalist trying to like fit into startup marketing. This is called content marketing. And there's a strategy that you can apply to attract people and grow your business and even monetize the content sometimes. So um, once I started learning more about that, it just kind of clicked and I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I can do the storytelling. Um, I can still interview people and ask a lot of questions and tell their stories, but do it for a purpose. And the purpose is to grow this business. And for me, as long as I've, I'm sort of connected with the purpose of the business, then uh, it allows me to be passionate about it, be an evangelist for it, and create all that content. Hopefully, yes. it's high-quality content that the audience actually wants. And, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm selling my soul to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> right. that's, that's kind of been my, like, personal career mission um, on that side is, like, okay, go work for interesting companies that are doing things that I think the world actually needs. It doesn't have to be saving lives or anything like that. It can just be, like, oh, this solves a problem in the world. And I think that's a problem that's worth solving. Um, totally. totally valid. And then, you know, use content to grow the business. And so, you know, I spent, um, how many years? Spent like five years at Talon Egg. And then I went to Influitive, which um, was sort of like my first B2B MarTech company. And, um, yeah. you know, started learning more about like demand gen funnels. That's where I worked for Jim. And um, he taught, he, he worked at Aliqua before that. So he taught me all about marketing automation and funnels and 
waterfalls and, and leads and, and all the things that I just had no idea about because we were just making stuff up at Talonite when I was there. We were just kind of <laughs> flying by the seats of our pants sure. and um, all recent grads who had no, no idea what we were doing, no marketing training, no, like we were just winging it and somehow doing a good job at it. Um, so yeah, my, my B2B marketing education was more formalized at Influitive and worked with an, an amazing team there. And that's when I started to realize like, oh, there's this relationship between content and demand gen that has to be in place so that every content asset you create is for a specific purpose in the business and the demand gen team knows what that purpose is and distributes it accordingly and measures it accordingly. So started getting really, really curious about that. Um, partially because of, you know, just knowing that journey, but also because I would get in like these weird arguments with my counterpart in demand gen around what was working and what wasn't. And I started right. just like asking a lot of questions. They're like, what channels are you delivering that, like those content assets on? And like, why do you say they don't work? And what audience segment did you market that to? Um, yeah. And realizing that, you know, he wasn't always doing it the way that I would have done it. Um, so just getting a little bit handsy and sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong in order to be like, hey man, like if you want this to work, I designed it for this purpose. You have to deliver it on this channel to this audience at this time in the buyer's journey. Otherwise, of course, it's not going to work because they're not ready for that message or it's not for them. Um, right. So just really trying to gain an understanding of what he was doing so that I could, um, you know, ensure that my content was succeeding and not not being like a total failure in, in, in return, um, you know, me and my team being a total failure. So just learning there about demand gen, customer marketing, of course, because Influitive is sort of designed to to be a great customer marketing and advocacy tool. Um, and along the way, I met um, Elle Wolf, who was VP of marketing at Lookbook HQ at the time. And uh, she sort of convinced me to, to join her team um, here, um, which was before we rebranded to Path Factory, um, and started out doing content marketing and eventually through some musical chairs on the team. Um, I was able to move into more of a hybrid role where I'm still leading our content strategy and producing some of the content, but I'm also right. overseeing demand gen and um, design and customer marketing. So a bit more of a, an integrated role where um, I'm looking at the whole journey that people are going on um, and trying mm -hmm. to bring them through that journey um, with, you know, delivering the right content to the right people at the right time in the buyer's journey um, along the way. So it's been a great, you know, another great education for me and, you know, doing all these things like our rebrand and, um, reshuffling our team, uh, reprioritizing. We had a new CEO and leadership team come in last year. And so that was a big, interesting change to kind of work for a whole new group of people. Um, so lots, lots of different things that I've learned along the way in three years here as well. Yeah. It seems like at the beginning, you just had to hustle kind of like a journalist would just figure it out and and you've realized that there's this you and content have this path this mutual path together and then being able to take it a step further and and just like you have with the events and all these other things really figure out how to get the right content to the right people at the right time so that it's relevant to them and they're not just flying off going something doing something else jeez Jeez, I feel like I need to have you come back on here and just talk content for, with me for like hours. I could probably like, do that. <laughs> you know, like let's let's plan on that. Otherwise, I, I I would like need to ask you about that. But I I guess what I'll say is like so so now you're at Path Factory, and if you're hypothetical for you, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, beginning of your career, you just graduated from school, you're a journalist now, and you're like, what do I do? If you could tell yourself some something like advice or any kind of things, what would you tell yourself? 
I would tell myself to have more confidence in my own abilities. Um, I think coming into marketing and startups with no business experience, no marketing experience or education. Um, I had a lot of imposter syndrome um, over the years and I I kind of struggled to find my voice earlier in my my career where I was just like, I'm just going to put my head down and do good work and let it speak for itself. And, you know, that worked to a certain degree, but that's very limiting from a growth perspective. And, um, you know, luckily I had some really great mentors who we're sort of like, hey, you know, when you do say something, it makes total sense and people want to listen to you and they trust you and you have really great ideas. So you should do that more. Um, yes. So, you know, just listening to them, you know, I think I was a bit slow at, at actually figuring that out and, and feeling comfortable and confident. But once I started doing that, um, you know, I felt a lot happier and more successful. I think I got a lot more done and my career started accelerating from there. So yeah, just having that confidence and not being like, not assuming that you're always the dumbest person in the room, which I think comes from like a journalist mindset where you're, you are sure. very curious and you don't want to walk in the door thinking you know everything. Um, and, you know, as, as also as a woman in very male-dominated environments, often in tech, like there's just that sort of oh, insecurity yeah. that can come where, you know, all these guys have all of this swagger and I'm just like, oh, like, do I really belong here? Um, you know, a bit of a bit of questioning that kind of stuff. But once I started being like, no, I should be here. And I'm, I'm just as smart as everyone else here in my own way. I just need to apply that and, and make sure my voice is really heard. Um, that's when things really started taking off. So yeah, just finding that voice a little earlier and having that confidence in my own abilities and decision making and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I can tell you now for sure. I've done a lot of interviews, but some of them stand out as ones where I'm like, holy shit, ping the team afterward. Be like, guys, listen, like listen to this, like uh, for the, the events, listen to this for ABM. The questions I'm asking are not like behind this guy made up things. They're like challenges that I experience and other people have asked me about. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> so uh, you are definitely someone to listen to for sure. Have you thought of your own podcast one day? <laughs> like, I, I, I would tune in. I, I would be your first subscriber. Yeah. Interestingly, I thought about starting a podcast for one of my personal passions, which, you know, I know we were going to get into this, which is, um, you know, backcountry canoe camping. My husband and I run it like a blog and an Instagram account all about that. And so we've talked about, um, and he's a podcaster as well. He started multiple podcasts. And so we've talked about doing something around that, but it's sort of, you know, we have that double-edged sword of like content creation is our, both of our jobs all day, every day. And so um, do we want to be doing that around our passion as well when we'd rather just be out there enjoying, um, enjoying the thing? So um, definitely have thought about it. Um, and some friends have encouraged me to start a marketing podcast as well. And of course, every executive that I've worked for has wanted to start a podcast, but um, I've kind of pushed them off. Luckily, the ABM Leadership Alliance is a podcast this year. So I get to oh, um, play around with that a little bit. I have a yeah. few episodes for Path Factory, but um, do more of like a water testing than just like me running a podcast. But, yeah. yeah. It's, a great, it's a great point. If you're making content for work, do you want to do it for the fun thing? And then it's, it's fun unless you turn that into work. Like if you exactly. turn the backcountry canoeing and can't, you got to tell me more about this. So you, so literally just throwing everything you got in your backpack, getting in a canoe and just going. And you're in Canada, so you can just go for hundreds of miles and no one will ever find you. So you have plenty of wilderness and all these things. Yeah. I mean, being in Toronto, you have to drive uh, for a couple of hours True. to get out of the city. But luckily within you know three three to four hours, you have tons of 
amazing wilderness at your disposal. Um, and it's actually busier this year than any other year because everyone is trying to get out of the city. So yeah. it's uh, incredibly hard to actually book book campsites at certain oh, parks sure. this year and the trails are all packed and the access points are packed. So it's been a really interesting year to have that hobby because normally you mm. see nobody and everyone thinks you're super weird for uh, doing that kind of thing. But now everyone's like, get me out of the city to get away from everybody. Like, give me all of your tips and your favorite spots. Um, right. And they just want to get out there too. So um, yeah. So, you know, we, we plan trips in advance. My husband used to be a canoe instructor and like a camp counselor who ran out trips nice. um, at summer camps in high school and university. So he's really the expert and kind of sucked me into it once we started dating and I fell in love with it because nature, I love nature. And um, it's, you know, having a job where you're so on screens all the time. And so yep. just, you know, sucked into Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn um, so many hours per day to have that forced disconnection has been extremely healthy for me mentally has encouraged me to set boundaries around work um, and screen time. And so when you literally don't have cell signal and you can't check your email and you can't see that Slack message from your boss, um, you can't scroll through social media. It, it's just incredibly, um, I don't know, it's just so refreshing. And I think it just restores you for the, the tough stuff that you have to do when you do get back to the office or back to your computer. So yeah, right. my favorite hobby for sure. There's something about it. I, I actually went hiking yesterday. It's become a new tradition. Like every Tuesday morning, just I'm bouncing and I'm blocking it off and I'm going up you know, for about an hour and a half. I can North, I can get to mountains, the white mountains of New Hampshire and, nice. um, and this epic hike and it being 12 miles was terrible. It was great. That's long, 12 end, miles. You know? That's yeah, that's far. Yeah, it was it was a long, long half morning day because it was like trailhead by six a.m. that kind of thing. Um, right. But when you go up this particular mountain, and you're coming around the back side of it, I was able to see this area that didn't have anything. Right, it had a like a stream coming through it, but you can see for like miles, and I knew the highway was way on the other side of the, the other mountain. So it's like there's almost like this private area that no one else sees, and it's a little more populated just that much north. I mean, it gets wilder, especially in Canada. Um, but it's just something about being like, okay, this is something you have to earn to see it. To see this, you have to venture out. And you'd have to canoe or you'd have to hike hours to, and, and to get here. And not everyone sees this. You know, just something felt special about that. I wonder, do you experience that when you, are you canoeing? And do, you, do you do a lot of portages between lakes and then you like oh, yeah. easy chain them on to like way out in the middle of nowhere with no roads and all that? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's the trick to getting away from people is to do at least one portage and um, haul all your gear across land. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, we're not super hardcore about it. You know, there are people who are doing, you know, they're, they're basically doing like 12 miles and portages on their trips. Um, sometimes oh. not all at once, but if you add them all up together, Jeez. we are not those people. Um, you know, we like to do actually like one to three portages and like they all have to be under a kilometer. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of stuff where, cause the gear you're carrying is heavy and totally. everything you need, right? Heavy. Yeah. So, um, you kind of have to be careful that you're not like killing yourself to get out there. Cause it's, it's like, it's our relaxation. <laughs> and yeah. so you know, that you're always trying to achieve that balance between um, difficulty and enjoyment. And I think there is a balance to be found there. And, and the thing that I really like about it um, that I've kind of realized over the years is that, um, you know, just like 
in journalism. It like forces me outside of my comfort zone. Um, it's a little bit unpredictable. You have to adapt to the conditions and even just stupid things. Like we went out this past weekend and, um, someone who was packing all of our stuff forgot to pack our sleeping bags and our cups. So we had to sort of, we got there and we're like unpacking and we realized, um, oh no, we don't have sleeping bags or cups. Um, luckily it's like the height of summer and so not having a sleeping bag is not the end of the world, but like, it's still nice from like a comfort perspective to have sleeping bags. So, you know, we used like our towels and our hammocks (laughs) as, as blankets. Oh, you were in hammocks. No, we weren't in hammocks. We have, no. we just have hammocks to like oh, you just read, have read in and stuff. Yeah. Like they're just like comfy, um, casual hammocks. Um, so we just kind of like pulled them into our tent and, <laughs> and spread those across ourselves. And then, you know, we use bowls for cups. Like we were like making our coffee in bowls. So, you know, you can adapt and you, you, yeah. you, know, you just don't have all the comforts of home and the ability to just like order anything on Amazon and have it show up two hours later. Like you're yeah. sort of, you have what you have and yeah. it's all about the preparation and things may not go exactly to plan. It may look different than you expect. Um, there may be way more bugs or it might be colder. Or it might rain the whole time. Like you have to actually deal with adversity. And I know there's like an incredible right. amount of privilege in me saying that out loud that like, you know, I'm, I'm looking to these experiences to experience that, that sort of like challenge, but you know, sure. pretty comfy to like sit at home all day and stare at a screen there's not a lot of, of adversity aside from like boredom and eye fatigue <laughs> that, right. that go into that. Um, you know, incredibly lucky to have a good job and a roof over my head and all the things totally. that I would need. So just trying to find that challenge and, and to, to push my body and, and my mind a bit farther than I, I would think I could go when I live in you know, a super cosmopolitan city like Toronto, where again, you can get any food you want at any of the hour, any hour of the day and jump in an Uber and you don't have to like really worry about, you know, how am I going to get places and what am I going to do? Although right now there's like nothing to do because we're in a pandemic, but normally you have anything that you could ever possibly want to do. And so how do you sit with your own mind and deal with deal with those physical challenges? So that's, that's a big reason why I go out there. Um, and also just to connect with nature. I'm not a super religious person, but there is a, a bit of like spirituality that kind of happens out there. Um, when you're kind of, not just thinking about like paying your bills and cleaning your laundry and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, taking it in um, just the sites. And I, I definitely have appreciated that more and more over time. I don't know. It's something to think about Maybe you try it out sometimes. Have you heard of uh, Joe Robinette? You heard of him? Yes. Um, I couldn't say exactly what he does. He was on that, sur- um, you know, that uh, live TV show. I think it was. Okay. People are stranded out there he just, he's constantly going out with his dog and, and canoeing and catching a fish. And there's something peaceful about watching him do that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'll, I yeah. survive winter by watching other people's tripping videos. I, totally. like, I can't wait for the water to not be solid. And so right. I can paddle it again. Yeah. Right. Man, this is crazy. Well, I, where can people connect with you? What, um, what social platforms should they reach out on? And obviously they should say where they heard you, but where, what platforms, what URLs? Hit me. Sure. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. That's the number one place. I'm also on Twitter at Cassandra Jowett. And um, you know, I'm pretty accessible by email. If people want to email me, Cassandra at pathfactory.com. Um, I'm all about those first name only startup email addresses. So yep. it's like the perk of having my name is like almost no one else will have been a Cassandra at a startup before me. So That's right. um, I always get Cassandra at and it's, it's awesome. So yeah, those three places are really the thing. And uh, you, you kind of mentioned my my secret slack at the beginning. So I'll just say if you're yes. if you're a content marketer um, who's looking for like a community of people to 
you know, bounce ideas off of, ask questions, talk about salaries or freelance rates, all that kind of stuff. Um, send me an email, tell me a bit about yourself and I'm happy to invite you to that as well. Got it. Do you want them to send you an email or a LinkedIn thing? Whatever. Or? Yeah, whatever. I'm easy. Okay. I'm on all those things all the time. So I'm a bit of a like communication addict. Like it's a problem I have. I I'm you. in about like 47 slacks at this point. Not, not really, but a lot. And, uh, I always have a million tabs open, so I, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Absolutely. Unless you're out canoeing, in which case there's exactly. no Wi-Fi, there's no cell coverage. Yeah. If I don't respond within a day, it means I'm on a canoe trip, basically. That's it. Yeah. Do not disturb at that point. Well, Cassandra, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on here. I've, I've learned a whole me, heck yeah. of a lot. Yeah. This has been fun. Like really good stuff. It's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And it was super fun to talk your ear off for like 90 minutes almost. I know, um, I know. So thanks for the you, opportunity. It's been really fun. When time flies, that's just what happens. See, I, I could, I don't know if we could ever do a canoe trip because we talk about marketing the whole time, you know, we'd have to just yeah. talk about like not marketing. Um, <laughs> amazing. Well, for those people listening, if you learn something and I freaking know you do because, or I know you did because I literally have two pages of notes front and back. I even ran out of space on there. Had to go in the margins. So, um, Share this with someone. If you learn something from this conversation, we talked about the events, shifting up the different styles, the length, the format, the session, the, the timing of it all. Don't lack creativity. Get out there, change things up. The ABM side as well, still in the midst. So much stuff here. If you learn something, share this on LinkedIn. Tag everyone, tag me, tag Cassandra, like, and we will comment and we will engage with you. That's what thought leadership is. Do that. Um, and you'll be surprised by the results. And with that, thank you again, Cassandra. Thank you so much. It's been super fun. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey guys, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.